Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. My name is Aaron Bastani and this evening I am your host. I have the pleasure of being joined by Dahlia Gabrielle. Dahlia, how are we? Hi Aaron, it's good to see you. It's, it's been a little while that we've uh, done this show together. It has been a little while. How have you been keeping? Yeah. Has Michael been looking after you? Ah, uh, always. <laughs> good to hear. We've got a big show tonight. We're talking, of course, about Tory party conference and Liz Truss. Liz Truss today gave her first speech to Tory party conference as Britain's prime minister. But before she could barely get going, she was interrupted by this. Let's get them removed. Later on in my speech, my friends, I'm going to talk about the anti-growth coalition. But I think, I, think, I think they arrived in the hall a bit too early. That was an interesting protest at Liz Truss's speech pretty early on, but it was one of the biggest stories of the day, so we thought we'd kick off with it. One of those Greenpeace activists who heckled Truss was Rebecca Newsom. I didn't actually plan to hold up a banner and interrupt Liz Truss's speech today until only a couple of days ago, uh, where it became increasingly obvious after the Chancellor's mini budget and recent comments from the Prime Minister that they are intent on just ploughing ahead with a load of stuff that is going to be against what Conservative voters themselves voted for in 2019. And at odds with what we now need in the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis. It's very difficult, you know, from a political campaigning perspective to actually engage in the usual ways. And so we felt we needed to take a direct message to Liz Truss and, and ask her the question in a rhetorical way, who voted for this? Because clearly she, she doesn't have the public mandate. You heard Truss mention the anti-growth coalition, and she branded those protesters as part of it. Later in the speech, she explained what she meant by that. I will not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. <laughs> Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP, the militant unions, the vested interests dressed up as think tanks the talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, and some of the people we had in the hall earlier. <laughs> the fact is, they prefer protesting to doing. They prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation, and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The Anti-Growth Coalition. Now, this seems like it might be an impressive cudgel to hit Labour with. They want to break up the union and they don't want growth. 
in 2015, it was the same line. Remember Ed Miliband and Alex Salmon's pocket? Only now they've replaced reducing the deficit with growth because the deficit doesn't matter anymore. After all, the public debt has only grown from 60% of GDP in 2010 to 100% today, so the Tories don't like to talk about it too much. Dahlia, do you think this could be an effective line of attack against Labour in a general election? That anyone who opposes the Tory growth over everything mantra is branded as embracing national decline? I mean, I think it's going to be very difficult to just portray uh, opposition to what is taking place in the country right now as, you know, prematurely embracing uh, national decline or as being kind of you know, miserable or whatever, because at the moment we have people being turned away from food banks because they can't keep up with demand. When, you know, if forecasts are right and we have gas shortages in the winter, it's going to be really difficult to kind of caricature opponents to these policies. In that context, it's going to be difficult because, you know, if I very concretely can't pay my bills, pointing that out is not like doom mongering. It's, it's just doom. And so what I think that we are, we should see in this moment from Labour. I don't think we will see it, but what we should see in response to this clear signal of where Truss's narrative is heading is to really challenge the concept of growth in itself, especially as it is used by someone like Liz Truss. I mean, there are many, many reasons why continuing a kind of growth-fueled economy is a death wish right now. You know, having a, 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 an economy that, that relies on constant production and constant consumption is basically incompatible with decarbonizing our energy system and stopping extraction. But even if you take that away, you know, you take that question out of it, there needs to be a really consistent message that this idea of growing the wealth in the economy at the very top in the hope that it will trickle down to the rest of us does not work for the majority of people. In fact, it doesn't work at all. Just increasing the scale of wealth accumulation without dealing with the fact that the problem isn't that there's not enough wealth in the economy. The problem is that the wealth is not being distributed. The wealth is being kept and hoarded and funneled at the top. In fact, I wouldn't even say it's being kept because that indicates that wealth is created at the top. No, wealth is being created by workers and it's being taken from them and guarded by the very, the very wealthy. And so we are actually really well placed to start taking Liz Truss up on that challenge and actually really challenging the orthodoxy around this idea that all growth is good for all. Because, you know, I mean, Ipsos polling has already, that was published in The Economist, I think it was today, did show that the majority of people think that politicians are focusing too much on very abstract ideas of growth without thinking about how that wealth is actually distributed fairly and in a way that benefits people. So what I really don't want to see from Labour is doing what, you know, in response to this kind of signal from Liz Trust, is doing what they've been doing so far, which is essentially, rather than going for the meat of a Tory agenda, uh, just saying, well, you know, we agree with the basic principles. We're not going to do this like us and us versus them narrative. We're just better executors of the plan that the Tories are are selling. So I think that that is is a risk. This needs to be, what do we mean about by growth? 
Who is this growth for? Who is it good for? And is it something on in these in these terms that we actually want? What is our vision of an agenda that can actually deliver something radically different from what the you know British people have been putting up with now um, for the past decade? So I think really. Labour Party and the opposition, the Labour movement should take Liz Truss up on that challenge to kind of really actually tackle what we mean by growth and breaking that orthodoxy that growth by default, all growth is good for, for all people. Dalia, I've got a question for you, though. Normally, when you try mm-hmm. and build these kind of cleavages, right, these dividing lines, yeah. which is what this the speech was about, there was really nothing substantive in it. We'll talk about them more in a moment. But this was the big thing, the sort of anti-growth coalition. Normally, when you try and do that, like with Brexit, you try and do it 52-48, right? You try and split the population right down the middle and give yourself, you know, just enough of a majority. But when Liz Truss is sort of, you know, naming names, Labour, the Greens, the SNP, the Lib Dems, the media, the pundits, the think tanks, climate clamp, extinction rebellion, whoever, we think, well, look, you're getting on for sort of 65-70% of the population here, Liz. Do you think it's an unwise strategy for them to pursue that? Because it looks like classic Linton Crosby wedge issue politics, but then actually their coalition looks quite small. We will come on to this shortly, but I don't think that Liz Truss at the moment particularly cares about what the broader electorate think. You know, there there is no her main challenge right now is to consolidate the Conservative Party, which is already uneasy with how the first few weeks of her term have gone, because the Conservative Party are the only people that can actually trigger an election, which obviously she really doesn't want because she's not popular amongst the British people. So I really think that that's kind of the point. She is trying to to bunker down and consolidate and fire up that base which is currently her main threat right now, because unfortunately, even though she is deciding our fates, we haven't voted her in and we're not going to have a chance to vote her out anytime soon. Generally speaking, Truss's speech was lightweight, but given the fortnight she's had, it was adequate. The only problem is that when you're between 18 and 33 points behind in the polls, adequate just isn't good enough. The speech was an identical Thatcherite one, and the metaphors and analogies would have been the same if you were watching a minister in the early 1980s or maybe John Major in 1996. There was lots of talk of growing the pie so everyone can have a bigger slice. By the way, I've always found that such a strange term. Pies don't grow. But anyway, there was one moment where Liz Truss almost got it. I grew up in Paisley and in Leeds in the 80s and 90s. I've seen the boarded up shops. I've seen people left with no hope turning to drugs. I've seen families struggling to put food on the table. Wow, Liz, you are describing life under a conservative government. Worse still, you're describing life under your political heroine, Margaret Thatcher. What's more, there was growth in the 1980s, more than now. But the point, as Dahlia has just said, is growth for who? as you yourself claim to experience firsthand, that growth in the 1980s left a lot of people out. It's frustrating with Tories because they often don't even make sense on their own terms. There were also a fair few fibs and misrepresentations, shall we say. Trust said she was the first prime minister to go to a comprehensive school. Impressive, only it isn't true. 
Both Theresa May and Gordon Brown did. Gordon Brown went to a state school, which was selective, but is now comprehensive, while Theresa May went to a grammar that became a comprehensive while she was studying there. And it's not as big an achievement as it might sound when you realise that comprehensive education only became a major part of the British system after mid-1960s. A prime minister who went to a comprehensive in the 80s would have been pretty unlikely since they would have had to be around 30 years old. Then there's the fact that Ramsay MacDonald, a Labour prime minister, and Lloyd George, a Liberal, also both went to non-selective schools. But that didn't stop the usual right-wing blaggers. Here's Andrew Pearce. Hashtag Liz PM in her first Tory conference speech reminds people she's the first British PM to come from a comprehensive. Leveling up? Now this guy writes the Daily Mail and appears regularly on Good Morning Britain. So expect this now to just become fact for that section of the media uninterested in actual reality. Another white lie came when Trust said that cutting stamp duty would help first-time buyers get on the housing ladder. This is ridiculous. Before the mini-budget, you weren't paying stamp duty on the first 300000 of a property, and you paid 5% after that. So if you bought a place for £350,000, lucky you, and remember the first time buyer on average pays around £225,000, you would have paid £2,500 stamp duty. Now the threshold has been pushed to no stamp duty for the first £425,000 and 5% after that. Let's be clear. This does not impact first-time buyers almost anywhere in the country other than bits of London and for children of the super-rich. And anyway, rising interest rates in the last few months massively outweigh those savings. The people that will benefit overwhelmingly won't be first-time buyers. And the point here is to keep the market hot and property prices rising. Then there was this claim. We are doing more in this country to protect people from the energy crisis than any other country in Europe. Now look, it's absolutely true the British government is spending huge sums of money to mitigate the fallout from the energy crisis. But a lot of that is because we started in such a dire situation. That means we're seeing higher increases than is average across Europe for both gas and electricity. This is electricity prices. That line for the UK pulls away with the war in Ukraine starting earlier this year. And although the UK has generally enjoyed cheaper gas than the EU average, that ended late last year. Britons now pay substantially more for gas than Europeans. The last time in recent history that was the case was in 2009. For gas and electricity, it really is a case of rip-off Britain. And amongst those saying that the UK government could be doing more is the boss of energy giant Shell, Ben Van Buren. He's called on the government to tax oil and gas companies. Speaking at the Energy Intelligence Forum in London, he said, One way or another, there needs to be a government intervention that somehow results in protecting the poorest. That probably may then mean that governments need to tax people in this room to pay for it. The people in the room, of course, were very wealthy individuals working in the energy sector. That's before mentioning the fact that while Britain has some of the most expensive electricity in Europe, the French government forced the country's state-owned energy provider, EDF, to limit electricity whole price rises to 4% a year. Impressive. Beyond the partly deceptive rhetoric, Truss's speech was light on new policy with no big announcements. Next year, we will host the Global Investment Summit. This will show the world's top investors there's nowhere better to invest than the UK. 
And we're seizing the newfound freedoms outside the European Union. We're the party who got Brexit done, and we will realise on the promise of Brexit. We're building an economy which makes the most of the huge opportunities Brexit offers. By the end of the year, all EU red tape will be consigned to history. Instead, we will ensure that regulation is pro-business and pro-growth. Leaving the EU gives us the chance to do things differently, and we need more of that. That's why over the coming weeks, my team of ministers will set out more about what we're going to do to get Britain moving. We'll make it easier to build homes, to afford childcare, and to get super-fast broadband. We'll help you set up your own business and get a mobile phone signal wherever you are in the country. We'll help you get better mobile phone signal. Your mortgage or rent is rocketing. Your high street looks like it's had a scrape with the Luftwaffe in 1940. Your nan can't get a bus anywhere because the services have all been cut. But don't worry, you'll get mobile phone signal. This actually sums up Truss's speech. There's nothing substantial beyond picking fights. Leaving the EU means we can do this, which is why we'll soon announce that. Just you wait. Presumably, they had no choice on this because, of course, the last time the government made a big announcement, they spooked the markets badly. You wouldn't want to repeat performance. Dahlia, was this boring, predictable, policy-like speech inevitable given the events of recent weeks? This conference was, you know, much less about doing anything of substance because every time, you know, they try to do that, it ignites a complete shitstorm. So I think this was much more about theatrics, right? It was much more about performing the sense of internal cohesion so that and, and you do that by creating an us versus them narrative. The bigger the them, the better, because it, it fortifies, you know, the the base that you're trying to, to build. So this conference was very much about relying on those big narrativistic stories that are pretty general, but they they hit the notes of the all the notes of the kind of common denominators of cruelty that that unites all Tories. Um, so creating these fantasies that they, there are, you know, all these people with with flat screen TVs who are mooching off the state or or, you know, there's all these this health and safety red tape forcing you to, you know, like get rid of asbestos and your buy to let properties so that your tenants don't get lung cancer. And all of these kind of like very base things that are long held stories in the Conservative Party that always riles them up and binds them together and reminds them of the principles that they all share and the reason that they're all they're in this this party. So so that's really what what this was about. It was as you know, as I said before, it was about consolidating that base, the MPs, the membership, who are already looking sideways at this Britannia unchained premiership, more kind of Britannia unhinged premiership, and sort of trying to appease and 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 quieten down those those disturbances. And um, because those are the only people that really pose a threat to Liz Truss's premiership, because those are the people that, you know, if they get rid of Liz Truss or if they, you know, are unhappy with her or put in a vote of no confidence in her, then that will kind of likely lead to, to an election. This conference was not in any way 
about speaking to the very real and urgent concerns that normal people have looking into what might be one of the grimmest winters in, in living memory and really being able to tell us what they as elected officials, although not elected by us, of course, what they are planning to do about, about it and what they are planning to do to, to clean up the mess uh, that they have put us in, especially over the past two weeks. And that's why, you know, for any normal person watching this conference, it was frankly pretty irrelevant uh, sort of navel-gazing, useless nonsense. We'll be coming back to events at the Tory party conference later in the show, but a different story for you now is this. Chris Cabell was an unarmed 23-year-old black man shot dead by a Metropolitan Police officer in September. The father-to-be was sitting in the driver's seat of a car when he was killed by a single bullet fired through the windscreen. After his killing, the police said that the shooting followed a vehicle pursuit. But now an inquest into Cabell's death has been told a very different story. The Guardian reports how IOPC lead investigator Dean Brown confirmed the Audi that Kaba had been driving was believed to be linked to a firearms incident which took place the previous day. He told the inquest the Audi was followed and that no lights or sirens were used. He also said Kaba was not a suspect. No lights, no siren, no chase. The officer who fired the gun was suspended and a murder investigation has now been opened. Chris Carver's cousin, Jefferson Bossella, spoke on behalf of the family outside of the court. Ever since that terrible moment, my family and everyone that knew him are asking one question. Why? A month on and we are still very far from getting a proper answer. But there is something else we want to know, which is just as important. Who will be held accountable for his death? I am Chris's cousin and today we are here as a family because we want answers to both those questions. We need answers. Not just this family, but the whole of London. The whole of the country needs to know how something like this could occur. How can a young man sitting in a car, unarmed, be shot in the head by police in 2022? Dahlia, we've heard these stories repeatedly over the years, but this does seem, to me at least, worse than anything else. At least with Mark Duggan in 2011, the police claimed to have found a, a firearm nearby. I mean, there was obviously a great deal of debate about whether or not that was real, planted, etc., etc. We don't need to go there. But this investigation is wholly different in so much as there's nothing remotely like that. Can you give us your thoughts? I mean, I actually do think that this is all part of, of the same story, actually, which is that policing is an inherently violent and racist endeavor, and it does not actually result in safety or protection for a lot, many people in our community. And even the people that it does claim to be protecting, even the people who have been socialized to feel like the police are there to make them feel safe, they actually don't do a very good job of making them feel safe either. You know, you have to, when you've had something stolen or when you've been in some kind of issue like you don't rely on the police to actually do anything about it so really this kind of like low level well actually not low level of course but like this continuous 
surveilling and an exercise of racialized power, particularly in cities like London, but also in other major cities in this country. That's kind of their purpose. You know, it kind of always was. And that history runs through in everything they do, whether or not it ends in the murder of, of someone like Chris Carbo, you know, or Mark Duggan or Jean-Charles de Menezes, all of whom the police initially lied and tried to cover up and rely on very racist stereotypes about Muslims, about black people in order to drum up public support for their actions and in order to kind of paper over the reality. And those stories about those people and what they allegedly did all turned out to be untrue. And so I think that that it happens, that's the kind of very sharp edge of that. Obviously, we have these examples of the police directly shooting people, but we also have much more ubiquitously in this country death uh, or injury following police contact. And there's actually, it's a very opaque situation. You know, we, can't, we don't have any reliable bodies to actually investigate what happens when we have these incidents called death following police uh, conduct. It's deliberately kept very blurry. Um, but even when it's not happening in this, you know, not resulting in someone's death, um, obviously, every time that happens, I mean, watching that clip of, of his mum and his cousin was just like, I mean, it's just I just don't know how you can watch that and feel anything other than just like complete disgust. And I think it must have been incredibly difficult, actually, for them to experience that at a time when there was a lot of public grieving happening, um, obviously, with the death of the Queen. But no public grieving, like not even one small iota public grieving being directed towards their son who had just been killed um, in this way. But to kind of continue with my original point, even when it doesn't result in death, it does result in continuous harassment and demonization and surveillance, things that young people of color, particularly young men of color, internalize about themselves and it has real impacts of trauma and distress that they carry throughout their lives whether or not it ends in death or whether it even ends in incarceration the process of police crawling through black and brown neighborhoods and stopping and searching and humiliating people in their neighborhoods and making them feel like they are you know criminalized before any reason to suspect that there's any need for that 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 is the raison d'etre of the police force, particularly in these major cities. And I see that all as one continuous story. So I actually don't really see that getting mired in the details of individual cases should detract from the fact that this is a systemic issue of policing in modern Britain. Yeah, I have to push back on that, Dara. I don't really agree because, yes, it is systemic, and this is an expression of that. But this story, when you look at the details, is extraordinary. There was no chase no siren, there's, no, there's not been given yet a pretext, a, a legitimate pretext, and he was shot through a windscreen. They weren't told to stop, he wasn't told to exit the car. So I can't personally think of a recent story with something analogous to this. And for me, that's quite important because if a serving police officer isn't punished for this, to a very, very, very high extent, I think a murder charge is legitimate in this instance, actually. But if we don't see something far beyond anything we've ever seen, it's important to say, I can't remember the exact details, but you know, more than 1,600 deaths in contact with police in the last several decades, or basically since the second half of the Second World War. You know the data more, more than I do. 
And we've never had a successful conviction of a police officer. And where I think this case is leading, Dahlia, and where I think the details are important, is that if we don't see that here, I can't see the conditions under which you would see the successful prosecution of a police officer having killed somebody um, after you know after coming into contact with them. So I, I sort of dispute that. Of course it's systemic. I'm not saying otherwise. But I do feel like the details here are just... Incredible. I have no idea how this happened. And, and I, I actually, I think that comes across with the media response from the police. They've not even tried to cover this up and by making crap up and by, you know, trying to stigmatize the name of Chris Carr, but they've not been able to because they haven't got the slightest thing resembling a leg to stand on. What do you think of that? I think that we get into a really sticky situation when we start to get too mired into this like politics of innocence and who was more innocent than the other uh you know oh jean charles de menezes well he did jump a barrier or whatever turned out not to be true whereas chris carper he was just driving home essentially no, i'm not suggesting outcome, I'm not saying innocence the outcome was the outcome was the same right so the well, outcome hasn't, that's, my, that's my point it isn't though we don't we don't yet know what the outcome is with chris carper well i mean the outcome of a dead man killed by the police who whose death is almost feels somewhat a non-event almost is that that outcome is the same and I think for the whether you're the parent of someone like John Charles de Menezes you're the parent of Chris Carver you're the parent of Mark Duggan or you're the parent of any young black or brown man who lives in a major city I don't think a sense of like oh, well you know there are like these major differences between that would protect one more than the other and I also don't think that the police ever had a leg to stand on with any case. And they did lie well, no, in well, the aftermath. So I don't well, no, think exactly. that the differences are that major. Well, no, with, with Mark Duggan, for instance, we saw a massive PR exercise immediately following his death. Massive PR exercise. And it's important to say the London Metropolitan Police Service have about 70 press officers, or they did at the time. And we saw an, a major effort to discredit his name, which we haven't seen s since Chris Carver. And I do think there's a broader context here, Dahlia, which is you've obviously had Crested It go. You've, you've literally had the mayor of London say that the London Metropolitan Police Service is a discredited organisation, discredited institution, public trust in it at an all-time low after the events of the last two years, not just on race, but also obviously on sexism and misogyny. And of course, for the parents, of course it doesn't matter. I agree with you entirely. But I do feel like with Chris Carr, it's a litmus test to basically say the police in this country have carte blanche to kill black men. They can there's, there's no conditions under which you'll find justice if your son or your brother or your dad is killed by a police officer and they're a black man. I think that message is already clear. I don't think it needs to be made any clearer. And even if there is a prosecution here, when you look at that broader history of the number of That's black true. men who have not only been, you know, killed by, by the police, but traumatized by the police, mm. that uh, without any consequence, and actually people who have been in charge of that have gone on to be promoted within the police force, the message is already clear. And if we see a prosecution, the Chris Carper case, when you look in, in that broader context, it actually just becomes the exception that proves the rule. You know? So you, that's, a really, that's a really valuable point. So you would say even if there was a, because it would be a first and it would be, you know, really without precedent. You think if that happened because the, the background, this is so big, the systemic injustice, which affects, like you say, tens of thousands of people over many decades, you would say, actually, the fundamentals here are the same. Absolutely, yeah. One prosecution isn't going to undo an, a, a cent, you know, centuries-long history of 
British policing being an institution that is used to surveil and control and manage racialized populations in major cities in this country. I think that's an excellent way to put it. I feel like this is a very difficult moment for the Met, but I think actually, Dahlia, you persuaded me otherwise to my initial points. Next story. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has been speaking out quite boldly at Tory party conference. And at this event hosted by The Telegraph, she showed just how bad her grasp of history really is. Can I ask you a personal question? Your parents are from Mauritius and Kenya. How do you feel about stopping other people arriving here? I have no qualms about that, absolutely. I don't, I, and, I, and again, this is a, a, a kind of a common argument trotted out by the left that, mm. you know, because of the colour of my skin and my heritage, I, I have to think a certain way and I can't yeah. declare certain truths on migration. You annoy migration. them, don't you, because you're not left-wing. I hope I annoy them. That would be, that would be my <laughs> delight if, I, if I'm annoying the left. Um, but no, I disagree with that. My parents came here through safe and legal routes. My mother was recruited by the NHS. My dad came here because uh, he was effectively kicked out of Kenya in the 1960s. But they came here legitimately. Um, that was the policy of the government. They came here, they integrated, they loved this country from afar as children of empire. They don't, by the way, have any qualms about extolling the virtues of the British Empire. It was the British Empire that brought infrastructure, the legal system, the civil service, uh, military, the military to countries like Mauritius and Kenya. And my parents are so proud. My mum, my, on my mum's side there, I think it's her great uncle and auntie fought with the allies in World War II. And we're, they were so proud of that. So I think, you know, children of empire, there, there are definitely, there's obviously a yeah. mixed picture and, and obviously yeah. there are bad things it's, about empire. But History is know, complex. History is complex and nuanced. And I'm not going to apologize for empire. I'm not going to apologize for our past. History Should we be proud of empire? Should we be prouder? I am proud of the British empire. Wow. The example of Kenya is a particularly interesting one when you think that as recently as the 1950s, between 1951 and 1960, Britain was at war with something called the Mau Mau uprising. As many as 1.5 million people were forcibly detained. Maybe more than 100,000 people died. There was extraordinary punishment meted out to what were called Mau Mau rebels. There were even operations performed by local white settlers compared to Dr. Joseph Mengele and what happened under the Third Reich. It is extraordinary in 2022 that this would not just be defended by a serving British politician, but celebrated by them. The conversation soon turned to Braverman's favourite topic, migration. And it won't come as a surprise to learn that what she had to say was full of authoritarian hatred. Small boats, that really annoys our readers, members here, I'm sure. Why can't you stop the small boats coming? It's a deeply entrenched and complex problem. That's a simple answer. And I would love to be here saying, well, claiming victory. I would love to be having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. That's my dream. It's when my will obsession. that happen? When will it happen? Listen, you've got to ask the courts about By that. By Christmas? Um, that would be amazing. But if I'm honest, I think it's going to take long. I think, you know, we've got to come out of the legal dispute that we are currently um, embroiled in. So the High Court, we're still at first instance. Yeah. The High Court is due to give a judgment later this month. If we win, that will be appealed. So then we'll have to wait for the Court of Appeal to adjudicate. That will take a few more months. If we win there, that will be appealed again. To the European Court of Human Rights? Or the Supreme Court. We've still got to exhaust oh. domestic remedies. 
So that's the Home Secretary's dream, to witness a plane taking off to deliver refugees to a faraway country with inadequate resources to take care of them. And it's her obsession to have it splashed on the front page of the Telegraph. I get the feeling it's the front page that matters more to her. Braverman also announced that she would introduce laws to make it even easier to deport asylum seekers. These would allow her to bypass those pesky courts that keep finding the Tories' indefensible schemes illegal. And she said she wanted to create a blanket ban on asylum seekers entering the UK through regular means. In response, the UN High Commissioner on Refugees said, The details of the proposals are not yet available. And UNHCR welcomes the Home Secretary's statement that the UK will always work within the bounds of international law. A blanket ban on access to asylum in the UK for those arriving irregularly would almost certainly breach the Refugee Convention. If this results in refugees being unable to exercise their convention rights, including by placing them at risk of enforced return to their own countries. Access to asylum should never be contingent on mode of arrival or nationality. The only way to establish whether people are refugees is through a fair and efficient determination of their claims, for which the UK has a clear responsibility. But what did Labour have to say on this issue? Here's Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. The Conservatives have been in government for 12 years now and illegal immigration is on the uh, increase. So uh, this is a problem that's been made under their watch. They need to process claims faster, get people out of the country if they've got no right uh, to be here and get a grip of their failed uh, um, immigration system, which is not working for, 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 for British people. and It's not working for genuine asylum seekers either. So you you'd welcome then she, uh, her plans to introduce legislation to make it easier to deport people? Well, the problem is, is the government are not deporting people today, uh, even when their claims have failed. What the government need to do is get a grip of the system, process claims qu quicker, ensure that people who have not got a right to be here are sent home. Uh, but that's not happening today. And that is 12 years of Tory failure. So Labour thinks we should be deporting more asylum seekers more quickly, which is what Suella Breverman thinks too. Rachel, that's Tory policy you're endorsing there. Dahlia, what are your thoughts here? We're meant to have a two-party system, but on this issue, hugely important issue, we could be breaching international law if Breverman gets what she wants. Two parties agree. Like, I don't understand what the point of, of the Labour Party is. And, and Rachel Reeves should be, uh, I suspect she won't be, but she should be deeply ashamed um, of that interview. This is actually where we need to start taking Labour politicians at their word, you know, and, and we need to stop giving them this like benefit of the doubt that this is some kind of like three dimension, like four dimensional chess that they're playing uh, where, you know, they're all kind of secretly progressive and, you know, they have these Labour values or whatever. And they're doing all of this messaging wizardry in order to to get into power. And then once they're in power, they will implement policies that will genuinely make life easier for marginalised people who they claim to to represent. It's, it's just not true. You know, it is simply not true. These are hawkish and cruel policies that are being pushed by people who believe in them. Uh, and that includes Rachel Reeves, because Labour currently have enough of an upper hand to to actually come out in opposition to this and talk about how the government's policy have led to, you know, in the fact that we don't have safe and legal routes to migration and safe and legal routes to asylum, that this is creating an issue whereby people are having to take unsafe 
journeys to to Britain and that the answer is not to pick someone up off a shore who is vulnerable and then fly them out to a country that they have nothing to do with. And so, you know, we ha- there is an upper hand here. The Rwanda policy is not particularly popular. It's likely illegal. Its main architects are currently extremely weak politically. And so there's no real reason for Rachel Reeves to back a policy like this or to back the, the, the sentiment of the Rwanda policy, other than it's because, you know, at best, she literally just doesn't really care about these people and just wants to get to the end of an interview and is a is an unimaginative media performer or at worst and what I'm increasingly starting to believe maybe she too dreams of planes taking frightened and vulnerable people to offshore detention centers which we know operate as legal and human rights black holes and that's the honest truth of it because you know this is not the first time that labor have laid the architecture for a racist and destructive immigration system. And clearly, if Labour get into power again, it's not going to be the last because this this tack of of not going for the meat of a dysfunctional and cruel policy, but actually claiming that you will be better executors of that policy is, is not a winning strategy because what it does is it makes you look like a follower to begin with. It makes you look like you have no political imagination of your own. It makes you look like you're on the back foot. And it also adds to the weight of the arguments of your opponents who will eventually, you know, get their crap together and will pick up from where you left off stronger than ever because you were, you know, lucky for them minding their talking points while they've been gone. That's what we saw with New Labour. That's why, you know, you can talk as much as you like about how many sure start centres Labour set up and whatever. Guess what? There's no, there's barely any short start centres left. And it's because this is precisely the new Labour strategy of leaving intact the main narrative and talking points and frameworks of a Conservative government, tinkering around the edges, contributing to the, to the discursive power of the Conservative way of looking at the world so that when new Labour burn out and, you know, left power because no party is going to be in power forever. The Conservatives were able to pick up from where they left off and undo the minor good things that New Labour was actually able to implement because the fundamental frameworks, the fundamental infrastructure, um, fundamental imagination was was kept intact. Yeah, there's this kind of idea that, um, and it's actually a big thing on the right, and I've seen it in the last kind of two days with, you know, Daily Mail journalists or whatever. And they say, look, Keir Starmer has secretly opened borders. And he, you know, they just say these things to neutralize, to neutralize the Tories on, on asylum. And I just think, I mean, you know, in a way, if only. Um, and I feel if you look at immigration policy from, you know, the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, it got significantly worse under New Labour. And like you say, Dali, these criticisms about, well, we don't support the Rwanda policy because we don't think it would mean, you know, a, a maximally efficient system of deportations, I do feel like, okay, well, what's the proposal then? Especially if you do get climate breakdown, you do get failed states across West Asia because of conflict, because of the aftermath of Afghanistan and Iraq, Syria. If you do get increased immigration into Europe, which I think we we probably both agree is inevitable over the next 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to need a more coherent position on that. And yeah, just treating this as a kind of like stopgap thing and basically imitating whatever the Tories are saying, but dial it back five degrees, inadequate. Next story.
The Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has had a pretty busy party conference. Rhys Mogg was also confronted by journalist Owen Jones, who tried to get him to answer questions on benefits. And this is what happened. Are you going to cut people's benefits in real terms? Are you cutting universal credit? Universal credit is not being cut. In real terms, below it. So will it rise with inflation? Will it rise with inflation? That is not my policy area. I'm the Secretary of State for Business. You must ask the Secretary of State for DWP. You've got collective responsibility. Do you think it's fair to cut taxes on big business but also cut benefits for poor people? Is that fair? Benefits are not being cut. You're talking nonsense. If they don't rise in line with inflation, they're being cut, Jacob. Where do you get your evidence from this? The fact that you just make things up doesn't make How's them so. I haven't uh, made you, things up. I'm yes, asking, I'm asking, are you they going invent, to rise in line with invent, inflation? You invent things to fit Why is that socialist no. view of the world. Jacob. And then you expect me Jacob. to say they are or Do you accept if they don't rise okay. in inflation, that's a real terms cut in benefits? Do you accept that? Do you accept but, that? But, but I'm not accepting your premise that you What's invented the premise? something. I haven't invented anything. If, if benefits you don't rise in line with inflation... invented something. Jacob, if they don't rise in line with inflation, that's a real terms cut. Do you accept that or not? But I'm just asking, ask, answer the question. It's such a simple question. One Reese mogg obviously doesn't dare answer. What I really want to talk about, though, are Reese mogggs statements on energy. Given the current energy crisis, it falls on him to develop policy to protect the country from future energy emergencies. So you'd think he'd have used the Conservative Party conference to lay out his plans to secure our energy supply. Instead, we got fantasy. Over the decades, we have established ourselves in, as pioneers in fusion science. And as a country, our capability to surmount these obstacles is unparalleled. And I'm delighted to make an announcement about the step in that mission. We will build the UK's first prototype fusion energy plant in Nottinghamshire, replacing the West Burton coal-fired power station with a beacon of bountiful green energy. The plant will be the first of its kind, built by 2040, and capable of putting energy on the grid. And in doing so, it will prove the commercial viability of fusion energy to the world. It will create thousands of highly skilled, well, excellent. And and I hope hope somebody will clip that as a round of applause for the good people of West Burton in Nottinghamshire for what they are managing to do for this nation. So it could be an industry worth billions of pounds to the UK economy and position the UK to design, manufacture and export the first fleet of fusion plants, putting us in the vanguard of a market with the potential to be worth trillions of pounds a year. Billions and then trillions. A working nuclear fusion energy plant by 2040. But what next? Maybe time travel by 2055, eternal youth by 2070. 
Nuclear fusion is the process that powers stars and that fuses less massive elements into more massive ones. It's the dream for abundant, cheap and clean energy. If successful, it would produce very little radioactive waste and no carbon emissions. But that's a very big if. For one thing, a fusion generator would need to store hydrogen plasma at a temperature as hot as the sun. For another, the fuel it would need can only be generated in large quantities once you've got nuclear fusion going, so it's a circle. An experimental nuclear fusion plant is being built in France to test whether electricity can be sustainably generated by fusion. Work on it began in 2007, and it's still only around 75% complete. In 2025, it's expected to start producing hydrogen plasma. If the experiment succeeds, the aim is to produce a small amount of energy by 2035. So Rees-Mogg's promise to have energy fusion online by 2040, when the UK has invested comparatively little in the technology, seems very unlikely to be kept. What will definitely happen, though, is fracking. We've been having a discussion about shale gas, and I want to contextualize that, because I know not everybody is keen on it, and we have to get community support for shale gas. That is of fundamental importance. Um, but Lord Deben wrote to my predecessor, he's the chairman of the Climate Change Committee, saying that shale gas can provide two to 63 grams per kilowatt hour of carbon dioxide equivalent less than from LNG being imported. What I mean in that, illustrates what I mean about intelligent net zero. It's about making decisions that reduce carbon but also make us more prosperous. Sure, shale gas might marginally reduce carbon emissions, it's true. What Rees-Mogg doesn't mention is the methane it generates, which is much worse in terms of its effects on climate warming. But fracking also runs the risk of earthquakes and water pollution and remains incredibly unpopular. A September YouGov poll showed that nearly half of respondents were against fracking, with only 28% in favour. Now, Rees-Mogg said that fracking would only go ahead with community support. That's the government's public line. But in private, Rees-Mogg seems to have been trying to find ways to bypass scrutiny. The Guardian reports that Senior staff working on energy projects in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy have been instructed to look into ideas raised by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the business secretary, to escape potential judicial review of policies or public consultation. An email to officials sets out that Rees-Mogg, a keen advocate of fracking, had noted that parliamentary legislation is not subject to judicial review and could potentially be used to speed along new projects. On the issue of environmental assessments for new projects, the email written by a senior official who explains that they are relaying Rees-Mogg's views says using legislation to entirely remove such assessments would be a more certain way to proceed. Another option raised to water down environmental scrutiny would be to streamline requirements from the Health and Safety Executive, with the email noting this would speed matters up further. Rees-Mogg also wanted to know what other ways to accelerate approval of projects without jeopardising international obligations connected to oil and gas, and asked specifically whether a debate in Parliament, for example, counts as a public consultation, the note added. Right, so community support by making sure they're uninformed about the risks. He also pretty much proposed bribing people to get their consent. When asked what community support means, Jacob Rees-Mogg said this. What I think you need to get con uh, local community consent is for the companies to go around door to door, as politicians do at elections, and ask people if they will consent in the community that would be affected. And I think people who are disturbed by the building works ought to get um, some compensation for that. And that should be a payment to them. 
and then you should have a royalty for people uh, where the shale gas comes from, which is what they do in America. Is why there's such support in America, because if they find shale gas under your house, you get some cash for it. I think that is th those two bits are an important part of it. And then some wider community benefit uh, may also be part of the package. But this is just thinking aloud, discussing uh, with this group what you might do. And then they have to go around to an identifiable community. And if they get 50% plus one in favour, then they should be able to, to go ahead. Would you allow fracking in your back garden in Somerset? Yes, of course I would. I'd be delighted. Would you? I, particularly if I get these royalties. I'd be, I, 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 it's all about it. <laughs> no, um, I, I, yes, of course I and would. And should all these people here think it's okay to allow fracking in their back garden? Yes, of course they should. Yes. Right, bring it on. Look, if we do what I am suggesting on shale gas, you will be doing a public service by having it in your back garden, but you also get paid for it. So both the country wins and you win. This isn't an energy policy, it's a re-smog fetish. In the middle of an historic energy crisis, that's all we got from the energy secretary. Fantasy on one hand, fetish on the other. Dahlia, do you think we'll see fracking under a conservative government in the years ahead? You know, I think there's two things that, that strike me there. Firstly, it's really interesting to hear, I mean, it's not interesting, it's devastating, to hear what re-smog is saying right after what we heard earlier in the show about Liz Truss talking about, you know, red tape and bureaucracy and saying we're going to lift all this so that, you know, businesses can get on with what they need to do. This is what she means, right? She means cutting the red tape that is there to stop projects that can potentially contaminate our water supply from going um, ahead. And also this these kinds of incredibly corrupt ideas of community support, this is a tried and tested strategy um, that has been used against indigenous communities, particularly in North America, which you mentioned, where fracking has been incredibly devastating to those communities, uh, where you manipulate these processes of informed consent through misinformation, through, in some cases, what sounds a lot like straight up bribery, through corrupting and dividing and conquering communities, selecting and amplifying particular community, quote unquote, leaders or members of the community and promoting them as leaders, even though they're not recognized or have any connection. They might have connection, but they're definitely not recognized as being leaders um, in the communities that they're supposed to be representing. And it's interesting to see, you know, that kind of perversion of this concept of community and informed consent in order to unleash destructive policies on people is something that has been tried and tested on indigenous communities and is now coming to communities in, in Britain. Would Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, allow shack, uh, fracking to happen in his back garden? I mean, he's got many homes. So if the water supply in his, in whatever home they decide to frack in gets contaminated, the groundwater gets contaminated and causes the kind of environmental destruction that we know and health risks that we know can happen, I'm sure he'll just move to one of his other many homes. So I'm sure that he's, you know, not too bothered by that. But I also think it's important to remember that actually with Rees-Mogg, we have a history here of him doing what I would call essentially a form of climate denialism. You know, he might not be able to come right out and say it. He can pay a little bit of lip service to net zero. He can't come fully out as someone who says, 
I don't believe in or I don't care about climate change. But, you know, this is someone who less than a decade ago was writing in The Telegraph saying, you know, that whilst carbon emissions have increased, their impact on the climate or their impact on global temperatures is up for debate. A decade ago, they certainly were not up for debate. That was scientific consensus. He also has deep vested interest in fossil fuels. He was reporting to the parliamentary committee for having undeclared investments in, in oil and gas. And frankly, when you are in, you know, 2022, talking about squeezing every last drop um, of oil from the North Sea, when you know what that means for climate breakdown, you may as well be a full-blown climate denier because the effect of you being in charge of energy policy is essentially the same. And, and that is what we are working with. So all power to those uh, Greenpeace activists who disrupted Conservative Party conference today. Um, that should happen wherever they go. He says he's willing for his garden to be uh, a site for fracking. Would he give it over to social housing? Would Jacob Rees-Mogg allow his estates in Somerset to become a council estate? I suspect not. Dahlia, thanks for joining us this evening. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. And thanks to all at home watching. Michael will be back on Friday night at 7pm. I don't think I'm joining him. We'll find out soon enough. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.